Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. I know that you want to hear the speaker. I know you're anticipating hearing him because he is a man with a great length of sobriety, about a 26 and a half year model or something like that. We are honored to have our terminal speaker, a man, like I told you, who must have begun drinking when he was 11 or 12, because he certainly doesn't uh, look like he's over 36 or 37. I didn't actually have the honor of personally meeting this man until this morning, but I met him yesterday in spirit. I sat across the table from him in our GSR meeting. You can look in an alcoholic's eyes, you can hear his words, you can hear the tone of his voice, and you know him. Every talk that we have had has been wonderful at this jamboree, and I am quite sure that each and every one of us that came here with a need have already had it fulfilled. Like I say, I know this man just by looking in his eyes and just by hearing him speak. And knowing his length of sobriety, he has something on the ball. So let's find out what it is. And I give you Cliff Double. Thank you. My name is uh, Cliff W. And I've been pretty well brainwashed, so I'm going to identify myself Texas style. Mr. Dingling over there taught me on the way down. And I found it very wise when you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. And quite often it's much more fun. I am an alcoholic. I have not, by the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous, I have not found it necessary to take a drink of any kind or use pills, tranquilizers, or addictive drugs for more than 26 and a half years. Did I say that right? (laughs) Oh, did I forget that? California? Hi. Now, I say this uh, without any feeling of anything personally achieved, believe me. I said out of the deepest gratitude to Alcoholics Anonymous, and even more important, to let anybody know here that wants to know it, that this program of Alcoholics Anonymous really works if you want to quit drinking. I'd like also, well, I'm thinking of it, to pay my deepest thanks and uh, warmest congratulations to John and the Jamboree Committee for putting such a wonderful affair together. I've been involved in these things, and they, they, they take an awful lot of detailed store work. You come here and everything's arranged, but you can't imagine the amount of work that goes together to make these things possible. 
But even then, to make it successful, it all in, uh, uh, revolves around the people that attend. I don't think I've ever attended an AA function anywhere where this intangible but unmistakable spirit of AA has been so apparent as it here. You can just almost cut it with a knife. And it's a remarkable thing. It's the greatest thing that we can show this newcomer, the spirit of AA. And I'm very grateful that you asked me to participate. <clears throat> and I do have to say something about John. you got a very fine program chairman, and he's very careful. He came up to Los Angeles, and I guess somebody recommended me. One of my must have been one of my best friends. But he was cautious enough that he came out to Whittier and attended a meeting with me to check me out where I was speaking. But you know, I damn near blew the whole thing because I got lost in my own hometown. I couldn't find the meeting place. <laughs> I thought, boy, I guess I'm 86 out of Texas. But John, in his nice way, says, well, he said, you know, I, I just feel that I'm at the right place at the right time. But, you know, I think he still was a little worried because when he routed me down here, he routed me down with this crazy doctor. <laughs> I guess he figured if I couldn't find a, a meeting in my own hometown, I'd never find El Paso. <laughs> I'd like also to pay a very warm and special welcome to any of you that are new or fairly new to our fellowship. And I'd like to make it ever so clear my role in being here today. I am not a, an expert on alcoholism, regardless of years. I am not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not even a speaker. I like to think of myself as an experienced sharer. I'm here today to share with you a miraculous experience. In doing so, I keep myself sober, and I sincerely hope that somebody else has helped besides me in listening to this experience. I think AA is the greatest thing on God's green earth. And I think members of Alcoholics Anonymous are the luckiest people on earth. And you know why? Father Gene talked, uh, touched upon it yesterday. This is a very troubled world we live in, isn't it? There's an awful lot of sick people who are walking the streets today, mentally and emotionally sick. They're filled with fear and frustration. Somehow they sense that their life has had no meaning or purpose. And they are truly sick, but they don't know what is wrong with them. Thank God we know what's wrong with us, don't we? It has a name. It has symptoms. And those symptoms can be identified. And also then we have a solution to our problem, don't we? We not only have this solution, but we have a society or a fellowship of our own kind of people where we can work out this our, our, our problems with their moral support and also have us around us an overwhelming amount of testimony 
that this thing works. Look here today. Any new guy, this is a demonstration of strength. It's a testimony that this thing works. Thank God A.A. doesn't deal in theology or theory. A.A. is evidential. We deal with the experience. These Bible students probably read in the Bible about the two apostles. They came upon this uh, incurable lame man, and they cured him immediately. The ecclesiastics of the day, I guess they were the eggheads, happened to see it. They, they were quite amazed, so they asked these two apostles, well, how did this come about? The apostles said, this is the name of Christ. Well, these eggheads, they saw the layman that had been cured. What could they say? They could quarrel with the theory or the method, but they couldn't quarrel with the evidence or the experience. You know, you hear quite often, well, doctors will say this isn't a sickness or it isn't a disease. What do we care? We know that a half a million people in God's green earth who were hopelessly uh, gone, are walking the streets today because they came to believe it was a sickness. So what do we care whether it's a disease or not? You read quite often now in the, in the papers about God is dead. Well, God is dead, if you want him to be. I found out God is just about whatever you want him to be. And God will never invade your personal privacy if you don't want it. But you can't tell a half a million AAs that God is dead when this has been coming to believe in him or a greater power has brought them out of the, the dark world they lived in. Too much evidence to the contrary. <clears throat> Bill has quite often said that AA is not only a moral program, it's spiritually centered. Now, sooner or later, every member of AA, or alcoholic approaching AA, comes to believe in and make use of a power greater than himself. And those that don't come to believe this eventually drink again or seldom have permanent recovery. God, as we understand them, uh, as we understand Him, is then the very firm spiritual foundation upon which our society rests. And I think every AA member that's been around very long would agree to that. However, we have found through the years that many alcoholics make a tremendous issue of the spiritual part of the program. And they uh, uh, put up hurdles and mountains of, of objections that shouldn't be there at all. <clears throat> and I know in the early days in Los Angeles, Bill used to call us the godless group because we never mentioned anything about spirituality or God. Our numbers were so darn few, we just couldn't spare any. And we knew if we mentioned God, we'd probably drive him away. Today, I would like to share with you a chapter out of my AA life of recovery, probably the most important period of my entire life. 
The first two years of my A life were, I came, it took me two years to come to believe. I can't say they were necessarily happy years. They were uh, years of uh, tremendous work and I think you could say if I was happy, it would be more like I had frantic serenity. But to the two years in my life, I never want to forget. But you know, for a long time, after that time, uh, this happened, I never talked about it. I, uh, if I did talk about it, it was with apology. But one time, something happened in Whittier. That is something I should share. It was brought very forcibly home to me. I went to a meeting one night in Whittier, and one of our newer people come to me, come up to me before the meeting, and said, Cliff, you've been around quite a while. I want to ask you something. I'm troubled. He said, I was a terrible alcoholic, and alcohol just completely destroyed my life. And about a month ago, I joined AA. And he says, I love it. I'm enthralled with it. Uh, the uh, atmosphere, the laughter, the warmth that you people have shown me. I, I'd rather join you and have what you have more than anything else in the world. So he said, a couple of weeks ago, I bought a book. a big book, and I've been reading it day and night. And it's a wonderful book. But Cliff, I'm intelligent enough to know that the crux of your recovery stems from coming to believe in a power greater than yourself, the spiritual of God. Cliff, I would like to believe that. I'd like to have faith. I'd like to have all these things. But you know that my people were Baptists, hard-shell Baptists. And as a boy, they taught me to hate and fear God. And I know it's childish, but I still have this feeling, and I don't think I could ever come to believe in this thing. Now, Cliff, and give it to me straight. Am I going to be one of the 25% of the people approaching you that can never make this program? Well, just then, the chairman called the meeting to order. Now, Whittier is my home group, and they never let me talk. <laughs> which is the way it should be. <laughs> but I guess God took a hand this night because the chairman got up and he said, well, the speaker didn't show up. And There's an old timer there that uh, I think would probably like to talk if we let him. Cliff, you got anything to say? I said, hell yes. And I got up and I re really dashed to the podium because I had something to say. And I told this newfound friend, I said, you have nothing to worry about, not a thing. I said, the condition of our membership is not believing in anything. The only requirement to become a member of AA is a desire to quit drinking. You have that. I said, I would bet over half of our membership are atheists or agnostic or antagonistic like you. Or have had faith and lost it. And through the years, we have found that the people recovering on this program that our atheists and agnostic have the same chance of recovery as those that have it. Their chances are equal if they have this tremendous desire to quit drinking. And I said, you know, you told my story, or started to, about your childhood. 
Let me tell you something. I was the son of a preacher back in Kansas. Liberal Kansas. I don't know you people from Kansas are aware of it. I know where it is, but it's not a very big place. My dad was a town preacher. And as a little boy, Sunday, today, was the worst day in my life. It was my day of rebellion because I had to go to church and Sunday school and Christian Endeavor and all these things as a good example for all the other little boys. And I hated it. I loved my father, but I hated the things they were talking about. I'd go to Sunday school and some hard-faced gal would tell me I had to love Jesus and love God. How could I do that? I couldn't love God. He was the guy upstairs with a long beard that was sending little boys to hell for, for doing things wrong. This is a tough world. How could I love that man? And Jesus, a little, a sad-faced man, it had a picture on the wall with a red beard, no muscle. <laughs> I could love Daniel, who fought the lions, or David, who slew Goliath, but Jesus, no. I mean, this is terrible. I know, because Christ wasn't like that. He was the greatest man that ever lived. A man, a strong, virile man. A great leader. But I wasn't taught that. And after I left, my, I ended up for three years, I, when I, as long as I lived at home, I went to church, I went to the funerals and all the weddings. Weddings and funerals to me were the same. <laughs> They smell the same and everybody cried. <laughs> so I hate them both. <laughs> but I developed through the years not only a, uh, this fear, I developed a, a very deep-seated resentment and even a contempt for spiritual terms, for uh, church people, or anybody else. It's worse than, than being atheistic, I think. The antagonism isn't so deep that it's hard to explain. But in 1940, 1940, I came face to face with a decision that God is or God is. Just the year before, our family doctor, who we loved and trusted very much, I told my wife, Dorothy, she said, Mrs. Walker, we have never, I have never seen a drinker like your husband ever get well. And I've been treating him for years. There's a certain type of uh, people, when they drink, they just lose complete control. And I've never had success in helping such people. And your husband, his brain damage and everything else has deteriorated to the point. I would recommend very highly that you have him completely and totally confined. I'm afraid your husband will destroy himself or go mad within a year. But I was a very fortunate guy. I had a wife who in 1939 knew that I was sick. Dorothy, this is unique to me. Dorothy knew I was sick. One day, uh, and she was always trying to help me find a way out. After I joined A, one, one time I asked her, I said, Dorothy, how did you know that I was sick? 
Well, Cliff, you know, I'll tell you why. Because you were always such a fine person when you were sober. And then you'd go on these terrible binges, and you weren't yourself at all, and you did these horrible things. And one time, after you had sobered up after a terrible binge, the first time I ever saw you cry when you were sober, you broke down and cried. And somehow I sensed that you were in the grip of something beyond your own control. And she'd seen the same thing happen to her wonderful father who had shot himself as an alcoholic. So she said, I determined I was going to stick by you and do anything I could to find this way out for you. <clears throat> and Dorothy did. My God, she... Uh, we tried everything. We tried the geographical cure. I'd say, Dorothy, let's move out of this neighborhood. These guys in these bars, they lay me down in the, on the barroom floor and pour that whiskey down my throat. <laughs> Oh, we'd move out to another neighborhood and we'd meet the same guys and they'd <laughs> do the same thing. I'd say, honey, why don't you let me bring my booze home? You drink with me and uh, uh, I can control it. Well, the only thing happened there, I damn near made an alcoholic out of Dorothy. <laughs> well, one day, Dorothy gave me a book. My neighbor had given it. It's called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. You know, I stayed sober about six months on that book. Instead of using it for growing, growing rich, I used it for quitting drinking. And it worked for a while. <laughs> but somehow, Dorothy, but I do want to mention this. I, I love Al-Anon. I, I think it's just as great. Uh, to me, an Al-Anon is an AA. My God, they even, they suffered so much worse than we did. I know my wife hurt much more than I would could always be uh, uh, numbed, but my wife suffered far more than I did. And I think going on people are, I just can't understand it. Really. It's beyond my understanding how these people could have stuck with us so long. I could have never stuck with us. You know, if it hadn't been for uh, Ann Smith and uh, Lois Wilson and all the Al-Anons, uh, the wives of the original members, there could have never been an AA. Thank God for them. And, uh, and <laughs> Anybody wants to fight after I uh, fight at the 155. <laughs> and I've never won a fight in my life. But anyway... Dorothy found AA for me in early 1940. Impossible. You know who's my sponsor, really? Beatrice Fairfax. <laughs> Dorothy read a, an article about the two groups in Akron and New York uh, called Alcoholics Anonymous. A new cure for drunkards. And uh, she wrote them. Wrote Beatrice. Beatrice gave her the name of a... Of a man that went to a certain church in New York. That's all she had. So Dorothy wrote to that man. It just happened that uh, Bill and Ruth Hawk had opened up an office on BC Street, and he knew it. So he turned the letter over to them. And I often thought, I wonder what had ever happened to me. Dr. Bob and Bill and the early founders hadn't thought enough of me to take the risk of printing a book and opening up an office and getting publicity. Where would I be today? If they hadn't cared enough, I'd be dead. 
says, just by the grace of God, this thing comes... You know where that letter finally wound up? In a woman's waste paper basket in Los Angeles. The woman brought it out and called me and wanted me to help her start AA. And this is a non-alcoholic woman who just worked her head off to start an AA in California, or Los Angeles. When she called me, I didn't need AA. I'd been sober two or three weeks. <laughs> the next thing I heard was of AA was a guy from Denver. He'd come all the way to California to find AA. And he went up to see this gal, and she was leaving for Honolulu. Everybody was drunk, and he... So he said, uh, well, I need some work. Uh, is anybody I could call on? He said, yeah, there's a waste paper basket full of it. And there was Dorothy's letter. And this guy called on me. And when he called on me, I was just getting over a hell of a binge and was receptive. So I go to my first meeting at the Cecil Hotel on Skid Row which I think is the first open meeting we had in Los Angeles. And Mort opened the meeting, uh, he got, he started at 10.30 in the evening. Because Mort had the only car, I think, and he was out gathering up all the drunks. At 10.30 we started, and this guy says, you know, I've never been to an AA meeting. I don't know what the format is. But he said... One morning, I woke up from a terrible binge in a Palm Springs hotel. And I was looking for the bottle I hid the night before. And I ran across this book, and he picked up the big book. I don't know where I got it even. But you know, I opened up that book and started to read. I read all that day, all that night, and all the next day. With the worst, world's worst hangover, I never left that room. I knew that this was it. He said, that was three months ago, and I haven't had a drink since. He says, I'm convinced that the principles incorporated in this book will bring sobriety on an all-time basis to any alcoholic in the world that really wants to quit drinking. So he opens up the book, the old book, to page 71. He reads the preamble, the 12 steps, and the paragraph action. And that has become one of the greatest traditions in Southern California. And I think it's great. One reason it says, in a sense, this is a thing of principles and not personality. Mort says, I know nothing about it. If you want the answers, go to the book. Anyway, I, after that first meeting, uh, Mort continued to start every meeting by reading the 12 steps. Well, finally, I rebelled. One day I asked Mort, I said, why in the heck do you read these damn 12 steps every meeting? Well, Mort says, why shouldn't we? I said, well, they're repetitious. Once you heard them, you heard them. <laughs> and I said, besides, they're not pertinent to my problem. <laughs> he said, what is your problem? I said, well, I just drink too much. My wife tells me when I'm sober, I'm a heck of a nice guy. And I said, there's nothing in there about quit drinking. There's something about alcohol in the first and the last step. I said, and all that other stuff, that God business, that moral stuff, I've had that all my life. 
My dad was a preacher's son. If God would work for me, I'd been so I wouldn't been here. Well, Mort was new. He didn't know what to tell me. But I'll tell you new people something. This is pretty good advice if you want to take it. But in AA, when you want advice, you'll always get it. <laughs> most of us can give it by the bushel and take it by the peck. <laughs> but be careful who you take the advice from. Because the guy come up after the meeting and gave me some advice that damn near killed me. He says, Cliff, you don't have to worry about all those 12 steps. Just take one step you like and that'll keep you sober. <laughs> and I found out later this guy had only been, he'd been to less meetings than I had. <laughs> but I liked the advice. And, but I said, well, I'm a gambler. I'll take, I like the percentages on my side, so I'll take two steps. I took the first and the last, I thought. And I became a two-stepper for a while. And I stayed sober for a while, which wasn't unusual for me. I always stayed sober after a bad thing. But I blamed it on the two steps I was taking. But of course, the inevitable happened. I finally got taken drunk. And not only got taken drunk, I went on the worst drink of a uh, drunk of my entire career. It was horrible. I don't know about the rest of you, but one of the things that made it bad. You know, in AA, uh, when you come in, you learn so much more about drinking you never heard before. These drunks are a very ingenious bunch of people. They told me where to hide bottles that I never thought of. <laughs> where to get whiskey. Where to, how to con your wife. Where to get money. One guy, he got up one night, he said, you know, every time I start on a binge, I always put some money in an envelope and mail it to myself. So two or three day, days later, when I really need it, here comes this money in the mail. Well, I tried it, and it sure worked. <laughs> but the worst part about it was the demoralization. I, 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 we had had such high hopes for AA, believe me. Dorothy had, and so had I. And uh, we were completely demoralized. And what had made it worse, when I attended this first meeting down to Cecil, I met a guy from Phoenix, Arizona, named Gordon. Gordon and his wife had come all the way from Phoenix to Los Angeles to find AA. But Gordon, I think, had made a very logical mistake before he attended the meeting. He told his wife, he says, Myrtle, I'm going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I better get drunk so they'll know I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> but Gordon overdid it. He, he passed out cold at the first meeting. <laughs> Never heard a word. I think I drove him home. But the next meeting, Gordon came back sober. And we, Dorothy and I, became quite friendly with him. Finally, Gordon and Merle had to come back to Phoenix. But right in the midst of this being, the worst of my life, Merle starts writing Dorothy the most glowing letters in the world. They were terrible. 
Until they go something like this. Gordon is doing wonderfully well. He's not only staying sober, but he has changed. The kids are not, uh, are not uh, got over their fear of it. The neighbors are speaking to us again. He's got a good job. He's holding his head up when he walks the street today. Well, you can imagine the impact of these letters on the Walker household, which is in complete shambles. Well, you know, I just couldn't get over it. I have kind of an obsessive, uh, compulsive uh, type of personality. I get fixed ideas, you know. <clears throat> At that time, I was holding on very precariously to a milkman's job. But anyway, I got to thinking about Gordon, and here's the way my alcoholic thinking went. How on the devil does this guy stay sober over in Phoenix? They don't even have an AA group over there. We have one here, and I'm staying drunk. I remember, just a little skinny, scrawny guy. He wore glasses. I didn't. That's intelligent. <laughs> I knew I was stronger, smarter, and better looking than he was. And yet, he is damn Well, the inevitable happened. One day, I disappeared. The milk truck disappeared. The money disappeared. And you know where we all found, wound up, don't you? Phoenix, Arizona. And I would say the drunkest, dirtiest, filthiest milkman you've ever seen from a Phoenix bar called Gordon. And Gordon came down and got me. Finally, he cleaned me up and sobered me up to the best of his ability. <clears throat> And finally, when I got lucid enough, I got Gordon in the corner. And I looked this skinny, scrawny guy right in the eye, and I said, Gordon, what keeps you sober? Well, this little skinny, scrawny guy looked me right square back in the eye. He said, Cliff, you're not going to like it, but I'm going to give it to you straight. I am staying sober because I have placed my drinking problem in the hands of a power greater than myself that I call God. And by working and practicing this program, I'm increasing my conscious contact with this God and this power and getting direction for everything that I do. He said, Cliff, my whole life has changed and I found a wonderful way to live. Gordon had given me the most unacceptable answer he could have ever given. And I was the most disappointed guy in the United States, believe me. But Gordon didn't argue. That night, he put me on one of these huge trucks that fly from Phoenix to Los Angeles filled with freight. Now, somewhere between Phoenix, Los, uh, Phoenix and Los Angeles, in the middle of the night, for the first time in my life, I hit bottom. You think all the things I've gone be before, the uh, uh, indictment of the doctor. I should have hit bottom, but I had. You new people are going to hear that expression quite often. You got to hit bottom. What, you say, well, what is it? 
We can only tell you how it happens to us. I've noticed a few modern AAs have raised the bottom that alcoholics have to hit. And I think it's wonderful, the way you've improved your techniques of identification. That's one of the most gratifying changes in AA. The young people that are coming in, the people that haven't had to go the complete route, who can see this thing within themselves far beyond going to the uh, ends of the railroad. And I'm quite sure a lot of these new... We have people coming in at 16 and 17 in our same And I think they hit this probably by stages, by uh, osmosis, by association. But with me, it was I hit it with a real big clump. Here's the way it was with me. I'm riding in this truck. I got the world's worst hangover. The remorses were the, the worst they had ever been. The guilt. And all of a sudden, it was just somebody had turned the light on inside. And I saw Cliff Walker as he really was. For the first time in my life. I saw my drinking for what it was. Stripped of all the romance and the glamour and the things that I had attached to it. Always, to me, drinking was a manly. Right, in the old days, you know, they, uh, you carried the flask on the hip and, uh, and the silent pictures, even then, they, uh, the he-man was the guy that could drink everybody under the table. But all this was stripped away. And I saw my drinking for what it was. And all it sorted. And I saw that I was not only destroying my life, but the life of lives of the people I loved the most. And suddenly I sensed that I had become a complete and total failure at the business of living. I couldn't possibly stand here today and tell you the depth to which I sank, the despair, the hopelessness, the... Uh, you know, for the first time in my life, I almost committed suicide. I just almost jumped out of the truck. I, I felt so hopeless and so helpless. Now, in AA, we call that hitting bottom. I think the religionists call it surrender. The psychiatrists call it deflation in death. But to me, it's all the same thing. All the same thing. Whatever you call it. Because this was the start for my recovery. Because right at there, I made a decision that became the turning point in my life. You know what it was? I, I knew I couldn't come to believe in God and all these things. But I thought of Gordon staying sober in Phoenix, and I thought of Frank staying, and Moore staying sober in Los Angeles. And I thought, surely there must be a way out for me. I can't commit suicide. My kids would think I was a coward. I wonder if they will take me back. And then I made this decision. I'm going back to Los Angeles. I'm going back to AA. And I'll do anything in God's green earth they ask me to do, whether I like it or not. You see, I'd reached an attitude of mind that all terminally sick people reach. A cancer patient, a tubercular, anybody that knows they're dying, become very open-minded, don't they? 
And they'll grasp at anything to get well. That's the way I was. I'd run out of choices. I only had an alternative. One road, oblivion. The other way, a chance. So I came back to Los Angeles. And I called them up and asked them if they'd take me back. And they said, yes. But you know, this thing was entirely different. I picked up the big book and I started to read and it was entirely different. I had read it before. I thought that it meant nothing to me. But now I began to get the healing message that's in the big book. The language of the heart, the language of love. You know what I has given to the field of alcoholism? This transmission line of one drunk talking to another. However, Dr. Bob and Bill learned the hard way that this only comes about when the sponsor and the sponsee not only realize their great need of each other, not, not only need each other, but have a deep realization of that need. It doesn't work if only one person needs and recognizes. You know, Bill, he went six months out. He was preaching and teaching and telling these people about this spiritual experience, and he got nobody sober. But when he went to Akron on a business deal and had a failure, he wanted to drink, and he knew he had to talk to another drunk. So he found Bob, and he described himself and got Dr. Bob sober. But more important, and just as important, Dr. Bob kept Bill sober. And that was when AA started chain reaction that they ate today. And I don't think it will never change. Just one book talking to another. But when I read this book now, I'm seeing myself on every page. When they describe the alcoholic, they're describing me. I'm sure that somehow they've been checking my mail or talking to Dorothy. How could these guys know so much about me? When they Describe an alcoholic and say he's different than the normal heavy steady drinker or heavy steady drinker. That's me. Somewhere along the line he loses control. On taking a drink, drinks more than he originally intended. One drink too many, a hundred not enough. These are all kidding me. And as he progresses in the disease, he changes his personality. The drinking personality very little resembles the sober personality. And they become this true Dr. Jico and Mr. Hyde. Boy, that hit me right in the eye. I thought, my God, I know they're talking to, Dor to Dorothy. Dorothy used to say, Cliff, I just don't understand. She said, when you're sober, you're a good husband, a good father, you're kind and gentle. You're a fine man. But when you take one drink, it changes your personalities. You get sarcastic and vile. And you shut yourself off from it. And I guess I used to be pretty unlovely in my cups. Because Dorothy, who never swears, had a very descriptive pet name for me. And you know what it was? In my cups, he used to call me a revolving bastard. <laughs> and when I was get sober, I'd say, honey, why a revolving one? 
She said, well, any angle I look at you from, you're still a bastard. <laughs> I could probably give you 45,000 reasons why she could pass for calling me that. But what is happening? They say, and other things, I'm just, it's just uh, almost knocking me down here with these coups. Uh, but the alcoholic quite often develops a positive genius for getting drunk at the wrong time. That's me. Hiding bottles. I was sure they'd been around our house. They talked about hiding bottles. Boy, that was a real contest around the Walker household. So I have a smart wife. And it took an awful lot of thinking and planning and ingenuity to get bottles into the house. If I'd have spent as much time on my job uh, as I did planning that, I'd have been president. <laughs> it said that the alcoholic over any period of time gets progressively worse, never better. And I looked at my past life, and that had been true. At times I thought I was controlling. At times I thought I had it whipped. But over any period of time, it got progressively worse. And then a time arrives where we know that something is desperately wrong and we look for this way out. And there's no way out. We go to our doctor, our preacher, our friends, and they can't help us. And then we begin that endless cycle of sanitariums, jails, finally the madhouses or the moors. I think that could be the thumbnail case history of any alcoholic that ever lived or died. But it certainly describes me. But more important, I am beginning to see through their eyes and their experience that I am an alcoholic. There isn't anybody else on God's green earth that could have sold me that idea except a recovered alcoholic. Nobody. They began to teach me things that were very important. You know, one of the most demoralizing things to me about my drinking, when I hit that period of where I realized that something was desperately wrong, and I knew I couldn't drink, when I tried to, I couldn't stop. This thing in a bottle had me late. I always prided myself on when I made up my mind to do something. I had an implacable will. I could do it. Bottle? No. It had me licked. You know, it, it was a blow to my masculine pride that a 95-pound blonde, soaking wet, could take a couple of martinis and I could. Well, they told me in the book why I could quit. To me, it was kind of the key to opening the door. Said in there that certain type drinkers, compulsive or obsessive, uh, if they don't take a drink, they react pretty, pretty normally. But if they should ever take a drink into their system, whether they've been dry one year or 50 years, when this drink goes into the body, it sets up a phenomena of craving beyond their mental and physical control. Now, it said, so far, and I think, I'm sure this is true today, that medical science, as great as they are, 
have not yet designed or found a antibiotic, a wonder drug, or anything else, or any other chemical that will remove this physical difference that we have in our body. I mean, this is physical and it's mental. But the physical is always there, and there is nothing yet that will change our body so, so that this compulsion will not be triggered on taking a drink. Well, I'll tell you what that meant to me. It was very important. And that is that the solution to my problem did not center in the body. It centered in the mind. Like thousands upon thousands of other alcoholics, I had to find a way of living that did not demand the first drink. That, I think, is what AA is all about. I didn't say a way of life or an ideology or a philosophy. I said a way of living. I don't think it was by chance that our recovery program was called 12 Steps. They weren't called 12 philosophies or 12 uh, ideologies or 12... Step means action, don't it? Not thought. Action. Find a way of living that does not demand the first step. You know, I went to Frank and Mort, and I told them my problem, and they knew it, about God and my hatred and my antagonism. And I told him I couldn't possibly take the second and third step honestly. I mean, it was just beyond my capacity. And Frank, my test sponsor, was wondrously wise for just a few years in AA. He said, Cliff, don't worry about the God business. That'll come. He says, use us for your higher power if you want. And at that time, I, and AAs have used it now for the last 25 years, the principle of substitution. The group, the sponsor, anything. Just something bigger than they are. And that's what I did. I had made one uh, concession. That such a power existed because I had seen it operate in Mort and Frank and Gordon. But Frank said, Cliff, you go ahead with the action part of the program. Because you've got an awful dirty house. I think it's going to take you a hundred years to get that house clean if you start today. And the good place to start is the four steps, that inventory. Then he admonished me. He said, Cliff, if you take any, try to put any of these steps into action before you take it, make up your mind to be as fearless, as honest, and as painstaking as you can. Remember, you're dealing with the most important thing in life, your own health, your own welfare. So, with that admonishment, I went to work. I was sure that I could never, never have help from God. I just, if you knew what I'd said about him, how I cursed him, and I debated against him, you'd know my feelings. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to take these, 12, these other steps about twice as good as anybody else. And I went to ridiculous extremes. When I took an inventory, believe me, I took an inventory. I think I wrote on every piece of paper in the house and all over the wall. 
But a very funny thing happened when I finished it and read it. It was very revealing. I found out that there was a lot more wrong with me than just drinking. It was amazing. I honestly didn't know all this. My God, I, I, there, I resented everything. Institutions, things, people. My God, I was just filled with resentment and hatred and anxiety and fears. My God, and it was all written down there where I could see it. And you know, I began to learn one of the great lessons of my AA life. I don't know how you were, but when I was at the worst of my drinking, being a very proud sort of a guy, I had to justify it. I mean, I think it's a human trait, but I had to justify these things I was doing. They were too horrible not to justify it. And I always justified it by the conditions that brought it about. I didn't get my education because I broke my leg uh, when I was a, pro a freshman at U USC and lost my scholarship. That's why all these other guys are going by me. They got their teeth skin. <clears throat> or if I, uh, one would be, if, uh, my boss would only understand it. What a genius I am. How conscientious I am. Or I might say if I only, uh, had a different wife that understood me. <laughs> I don't tell Dorothy that way. <laughs> Or if somebody leave me a million bucks, God, I'd be all right. I'd pay off my bills and I'd have no problem. I'd have no reason to drink. The conditions were only different. So I'm beginning to learn that the conditions are always the same. You all know that. Everybody has problems, don't they? Everybody has business failure. Everybody has bereavement, bereavements and tragedies. That is growing up in this world of ours. They don't go out and destroy their lives because of the conditions. No. What I'm learning, beginning to learn now, that this program can change me to meet the conditions, whatever they happen to be. And what the kind of sobriety I am striving for is where I can stay sober, live the good purpose, be reasonably happy under any and all conditions. And I know this program will make that possible. Of course, at that time I didn't realize that, but I'm beginning to learn it. And I, I must admit, the way I'm working the 12 steps is by rote. I still don't like them a damn bit better than I did before. It's a do-or-die basis with me. It's repulsive to me, but Frank says to do it, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to show him I'll do it better than anybody else. And so I was taking everything by rote. Probably like uh, an old maid would take Lydia Pinkham's compound. She didn't understand it, didn't know what was in it, but she hoped something would happen. <laughs> That's the way I was. I'm a dry speaker. I usually drink about three of these. And I'm going along. I don't know how much time passes, but finally I call up Frank and I said, Frank, I'm in trouble. <laughs> 
says, what's the matter, Cliff? I said, you know, since I come back from Phoenix, I've done everything you've asked me to do, haven't I? He said, yes, Cliff, you've done a real good job. <laughs> I said, but I've got something I can't handle. He said, what's the matter? I said, well, I've been trying to take these amend steps. For you new people, we found, uh, found itself that we, to get along with people, we would have to right our wrongs of the past. And so we make amends to people we harm. I said, Frank, I've written letters and gone to people that I felt that I've harmed. Nothing's really happened, but nothing bad's happened. <clears throat> but I said, uh, <clears throat> in the book, it said when you uh, are making amends, you shouldn't forget your creditors. It said you should tell them, uh, go to them and tell them what happened. Now, Frank, you know I can't do that. My God, when I went to Phoenix with a milk truck, I took about seven or eight hundred dollars of the company's money. But the bonding company had to pay it back. I borrowed a hundred dollars on a fifty-dollar Ford that was wrecked. I owed grocery bills. I owed uh, every stick of furniture in our house had been bought on the dollar down and so much a month plan. I just owed everybody. I said, Frank, I think with such a weighted debt, I better go to South America and start all over. <laughs> so Frank says, well, go ahead, Cliff. Go on. You go to South America. But I want to tell you something. When you get to South America and you get off the boat, at the end of the gangplank, the first guy you're going to run into is Cliff Walker. You've been running away from that guy for years. Don't you think it's time now to face up to him? He said, when you come back from Phoenix, you said you would do anything. You would go to any length to stay sober. You said you'd jump off the pier with your clothes on if, it's caught, uh, if I asked you to. Did you mean it? I said, yes, Frank, I did. He said, will you then do what I ask you to do? And I said, I'll try he said, you get up tomorrow morning, go down to the bonding company and tell them what happened. I said, Frank, do you mean I should go down there and tell them I stole this money that they had to pay back? I said, they'll throw me in jail. I can still hear Frank say, so what? <laughs> he said, do you want to live or you want to die? <laughs> it was as simple as that. Well, I get up the next morning and kiss my wife and two kids fondly farewell. <laughs> I get down to Spring Street, and I got, I'm a shy guy anyway, and I had to take five trips around the block. But finally, when I went into the bonding company and they showed me into this office, I was all steamed up, and I walked in this office, and I said, my name is Cliff Walker, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Little guy sitting there, he says, well, that's too bad. <laughs> I said, I got drunk, and I told him the story. I spent this money, and you had to pay it back. And I said, I'm ready for jail. He kind of grinned. He said, well, sit down for a while. Let's talk it over. Pretty soon he said, you know, uh, Mr. Walker, you're not the only guy that ever got in trouble with bonding company. A lot of guys do. A lot of them, for the same reason, you're in trouble. He said, here's one. He pulls out a card. So this guy got in real trouble. He owes us $45,000. And you know at the rate he is paying us back, 
We figured it'd take about 980 years to get our money. <laughs> he said, if we put you in jail, we couldn't collect a dime from you. I said, Hi. He said, how much could you pay us in good faith? He said, well, I get $18 a week Social Security. And I named off all these debts. I said, also, I've got a wife and two kids and a dog and a parakeet to feed. That's pretty heavy. He says, well, look, he said, could you pay us 50 cents a week in good faith? I said, well, sure. I can do that. Well, you do that and you'll be all right. When I walk out, he says, now, if you get in trouble and can't pay the 50 cents, just call us. You know, when I walked in there, I was still the defiant rebel. I was sure this SOB was going to throw me in jail. I was only doing this because Frank said so. But I got to thinking, well, gee, maybe there's something to this program. Facing up to things. Being honest. That was a wonderful little guy. And I thought, well, my cynicism came back a little. Well, maybe he was just a extra special kind of guy. Maybe I better try another one or two before I go off half cock. Well, near where I lived on San Vicente and Melrose, there was a Jewish grocer that I absolutely hated. I despised him. I had the deepest resentment of all towards this little Jewish grocer. You know why? Not because he was a Jew. Because I owed him $200 for groceries. And I couldn't pay it back. In my mind, I'd go like this. He's putting a squeeze on me. He's going to run me out of town. He's going to garnish my wages. I wasn't even working. <laughs> and the guy never bothered me. But I said, boy, if it'll work with this guy, it'll work with anybody. So while I'm steamed up, I drive out to San Vicente and Melrose, and I go into this grocery store, and I finally get this little Jew aside, and and I said, Mr. So-and-so, you probably don't know this, but I am an alcoholic. He says, you're telling me. <laughs> I said, I owe you quite a bit of money. I lost my job from drinking. But I want you to know I recognize the debt. And I'm going to pay you back someday if you'll just go along with me. You know what that little dude did? He put his arm around my shoulder and he said, Mr. Walker, I think you're wonderful. You're wonderful. He says, you know, when most people owe me money and they can't pay, they move away or they evade me. But you come in here like a man and you look me in the eye and say you're a drunkard. He says, that's the finest thing that ever happened to me. Well, I really broke down, and I told him what we were trying to do. There were only a handful of us. We didn't know if it would work, but it was our only chance to survive. And he was enthralled with it. And as I started to walk away, he called me back, and he said, Mr. Walker, he says, this is depression days. You're going to have a rough road back. I want you to know you don't have to worry about the money you owe me. And if you need food to feed your kids and family, you come in here. With me, your credit is unlimited. When I walked out on the sidewalk that day, I, I, I would like to describe it, but I can't. I'm beginning now, 
I guess the program is beginning to work through my own actions. But one of the greatest lessons I learned that day was probably the greatest lesson of my AA life. You know what it is, how to master resentment. You know what Bill says about resentment? It probably kills more alcoholics, and that includes AAs, than any other one thing. That the harms people do it, whether they are imaginary or real, have the same power to destroy it. This little Jewish grocer, grocer had never harmed me, but in my mind, he had. If I hadn't gone to him that day, and he hadn't received me the way he did, I'm quite sure I wouldn't be here today. I owe a great part of my life to this little Jewish grocer. Well, we went to all our debts the same, all these hard, cold finance companies. I wasn't always received that well, but we found out that they would rather have something than nothing. And we were paying off our bills, 10, 15 cents on bills were running into the hundreds. It took us five years to pay off. But all this time, I'm going down to meetings. That time, I'm wondering when I'm going to have my spiritual experience. The old book, you know, says after having had a spiritual experience, we practiced and we carried this message to others. And I'd read about Bill's experience. God, that was a wonderful one. That's the kind I wanted. A spectacular <laughs> in color. <laughs> the, room, the, in the room lighting up, you know. And I'd ask him, when's the bell going to ring? When am I going to have my spiritual experience? And nothing happened. I don't know how long a time went by, but one day I'm in my room and I'm taking my 10th and 11th, and I'm praying because the book says to pray and meditate, and I'm still feeling like a hip hypocrite, <clears throat> but uh, all of a sudden a thought struck me. I've been sober two years. Not only that, I hadn't even had a desire to drink for over a year. I'd even quit dreaming about getting drunk. Also, I realized suddenly that I had changed. The old fears were leaving me. I'd even had enough courage the last Friday, the Friday night before to get up and read the 12 steps. It took me two years to get that kind of courage. I was getting along better with people. Then I knew somehow I had made a change that I couldn't have done myself. And I sensed that I had had help from something bigger than I. And all of a sudden, I came to believe. Nothing spectacular. But I had felt the presence of something bigger than I. God is I understand I think my own responsive conscience and God consciousness finally merged. He was there all the time, of course. William James calls that the garden variety of spiritual experience, slow growth and awakening. It wasn't spectacular, but I wouldn't trade that experience for all the spectaculars in the world. Because mine was born of work and my own experience and my conviction born of experience. And it stood me by these many years, and I, I've built upon it. 
and God's there, I think, all the time. Even though I call it, you, a lot of us will call our steps psychological. Reminds me of the old timer there in Whittier one night. He got up and, you know, he's a rough, tough old guy. He says, you know, I get sick and tired of these guys getting up here and say they can't find God. He says, you want to know something? He ain't lost. <laughs> That's the way it was. He was there all the time. And I told my newfound friend, see, you've got all the requirements there. Find permanent sobriety. Just be open-minded and willing. Forget your prejudice. Don't let the terms here upset you. Go to work and do what I did with this desire to quit drinking. You keep on practicing these steps every day, whether you like them or understand them. Don't make any difference. You practice them long enough, someday something will happen to you. Something wonderful will happen to you. And your life will change like mine. And you will come to believe you know, I thank God that the, the founders, when they wrote that step, second step, they didn't put a time limit on it. My God, I wouldn't be here if they'd put a time limit on it. Some guys, it takes a long time, but it's been a wonderful experience. You know, back in 1955, at the spiritual meeting, St. Louis. Our lovable Dr. Sam Shoemaker talked. He is dead now, but he was one of the greatest friends that we ever had. Episcopal minister. This morning he said, you know, he said, the greatest needs of our time, I think, is a worldwide spiritual awakening. And he says, I am convinced that this may be upon us now when I stand here and see UAA and your program. I think this may be the start. He says, no one can doubt that God made what, AA, what it is, inspired it, gave it this intangible but unmistakable spirit. You know, Dr. or Father Genius, he said we should pass our program on to others, which we can do indirectly, by example. We can't, of course, take on the troubles of the world with 30 million alcoholics yet that don't know about it. But by example, I think we can. And I, I don't know why it is at this time, at this point of history, God decided to help us drunk. You know, for countless ages, Legions of drunks have gone on to oblivion without help. Maybe because God wanted to start this worldwide spiritual experience. I don't know. But if so, it wouldn't be the first time in history that God has used human weakness to demonstrate his healing power. All of you have heard of St. Paul. Who was he? He used to be Saul, the persecutor of Christians. He stood by and watched young Stephen stoned to death and never said a word. But one day God caught up with him and changed him. And Saul, the persecutor, became St. Paul, the apostle, apostle, a great Christian leader. Back in the fourth century, there was a young man who spent his life in drinking and rioting named Augustine. 
And he almost broke his mother's heart because of his dr- drunkenness. And I have a hunch Augustine might have been a lush. But I think Augustine and the lush finally hit bottom. And God caught up with him and changed him. And Augustine the dissolute became St. Augustine, one of the world's greatest Christian leaders. There's many more. But isn't it conceivable? that God may be working through us today as an example to this very troubled materialistic world. Could he have picked anybody who in the eyes of society are more forlorn and hopeless? We were the children of the darkness, weren't we? You know, I think that every AA story of recovery has a tremendous example set before this troubled world. And the lesson, I think, would be this that God can and does use human weakness or to demonstrate his uh, healing power. No failure ever need be final. No man need to stay the way he is. With God's help, he can throw off the chains of any enslaving obsession and one day be free again to be just what God wants him to be. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.